You're listening to the Business as Usual podcast, your weekly discussion of all things business, finance, and personal finance. And now, here's your host, Jason Hughes. Hey guys, and welcome to the Business as Usual podcast. My name is Jason, and I'm here as usual with Matt. Matt, how are you this week? Going well. I had a really good sleep last night, (laughs) (laughs) as you're aware. Yes. Oh my God. We're not not having breakfast drinks today. Well, this is (laughs) pre-breakfast because I haven't even eaten yet, and it's four o'clock. No, I know what I did. I had an alarm set, right? For 2.20 p.m., which is about yeah. about normal when I have it. And, mm-hmm. I mean, this has got to be an argument for free will. Because I, I literally <laughs> turned the alarm off in my sleep or half conscious <laughs> and then went straight back to sleep. Ugh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not good. It's one of these phones where you just have to push dismiss like once. Like the yeah. old phone I had had a slider. Yeah. So, it's mu- much harder for my, like, stupid brain in the morning to sort of dismiss it without me wanting to dismiss it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a funny story this week, though. Um, yeah. Not relating to investing or anything. So, we were... Me and my girlfriend were in David Jones. And... Yeah. We're looking at perfume. Okay. <laughs> and um, she's basically just looking for more perfume because... Uh, like the last one she had, I absolutely hated it. <laughs> like so much so that I said, you know, can you please, can you please stop wearing it kind of thing? <laughs> so she hadn't wore this, um, perfume for ages, ages and ages and ages. And we're in Java Jones and we're looking around for, I don't know, 10 minutes or so. And I come up to this other perfume. It's like the Daisy one. It's got like daisies on the top of it, gold daisies. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm going to be honest. I'm not an expert on perfume. That's bottles. all right. I didn't expect you to be. <laughs> Other people might know. Apparently, Maybe. anyway, it's the best-selling perfume. Okay. Current, like one of the best-selling perfumes currently, or have Daisy been. perfume. Yeah. Anyway, before before I talked to her, I went up to her and I'm like, "Oh, this is the one I bought my mum, mm-hmm. like years ago, five years ago, probably." And she's like, that's my perfume. I'm like, no way. <laughs> the one that you hate. So, the reason I hated it was because Is my because girlfriend smelled like my mum. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't, but the thing is, I didn't know to join the dots in my head. Like, yeah. it was all subconscious. That was the amazing thing. Yeah. Absolutely well, that's the thing about hated smell. it. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it's so very I- weird. It's a very weird sense. Like you don't. There's no names for smells, really. Yeah. Like if you think about it, like there's no. It's like just a it's feeling. Something smells like something else. You know, yeah. like there's no there's no objective like green smell. Yeah. Or exactly. blue smell. It's just like this smells like that thing. Yeah. But anyway, I, I called my parents. My sister was there, <laughs> and she sent through another perfume like to replace it apparently she sent through her perfume i'm like you know 
is we've got the same problem now. We've gone from <laughs> smelling like my mum to smelling like my sister. Like we're not we're not getting any better here. <laughs> anyway. Oh no. I thought that was pretty funny. How's your week been? Yeah. Uh it's not been too bad. Um it's like the first week back after end financial year, so like cleaning up the mess that was left, I guess. And then I had an exam to do for uni. Yeah. Which is like a take home exam because the course I'm doing is very practical based. Yeah. Um, so the take home exam, I sent you one of the one of the questions. That was. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was um, a tough tough exam. So I I submitted that last night. So I've been sort of just doing nothing today because like this week has been one of those weeks where it's nonstop. Like I've I've had that hanging over my head the whole week. Yep. Um, so, um, but yeah, you you texted me. What was it? Probably Thursday, um, Wednesday or Thursday, and said Coke's released an energy drink. Oh my god. <laughs> I forgot to get it. You, no! you forgot. Oh no. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I've got a can here, so we're going we're to taste test this. Okay. Um, it, yeah, it just looks like like Coke. Um, they only had the sugar-free versions in the fridges at Woolworths. Oh, okay. Um, but I've managed to find some of the. Should I pour this into a glass? I should, I should see if no. it looks like Coke. Oh, no. yeah, probably. Yeah, you've got to see the color. All right. Just because, like, you know, when we did the Red Bull episode, we were saying, oh, what if Coke makes, a, makes an energy drink? Yeah. Well, and now, now, now they it's, have. That's an obvious. Yeah. Not just, like, their mother or whatever they have. Yeah. Like an actual- Although I think I was looking into it. Um I don't think they make mother. I think they just distribute it. Okay. I think Monster makes mother. Oh, okay. Um Okay, so it's um it's slightly lighter than Coke. It looks a bit like watered down Coke. Um Yeah. It's yeah, it's not like that dark, like very dark colour. It's kinda like a more like reddish um see through. Okay, red. Because Coke yeah, like it's got a red. Yeah, well, it's brown, but it's got a bit of a red tinge. Okay. Um, it doesn't taste like Coke. Does it on the Does it on the container say it's got like flavoring of Coke? Like it's meant to taste like Coke. It's on the container. It says the only energy drink with a great great Coca Cola taste. (laughs) Um, It doesn't even taste like Coke. I mean, it does. Like you can tell. If someone handed it to you and said, what do you think this is? You wouldn't say Coke. Yeah, right. Like, you'd probably say, oh, this is a knockoff cola. It doesn't have a distinctive, like, like that energy drink taste, though. Yeah, okay. Um, and it doesn't have that smell either. It smells a bit like ginger beer. And looks a bit like ginger beer, I guess. Like a dark ginger beer. So what does it taste like, then, if it doesn't taste like Coke? It kind of tastes like um, like a bad sort of like 20 cent cola you could buy from a oh, service station. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's like, you know, those, those colas taste like cola, but it just doesn't really yeah. match Coke. Yeah. 
I know. So it's ones. not necessarily bad. It's just, it's not Coke. Uh, yeah. I don't know. It's fine. It's probably less intimidating, like, not intimidating, but less, <laughs> um, less, like, artificial, fla- like, tasting than, like, Monster and Mother. Yeah. Because those taste like, like, jet fuel. Um, and it's not gonna... I like the jet, I like the jet fuel taste, though. Yeah, I do, I do as well. But there's a lot of people who just can't stand, the, like, specifically the smell of it. Yeah. So... Maybe it'll it'll break into that market a little bit. I noticed it too. There wasn't anything crazy in there. There was no. eighty milligrams of caffeine, and um, that other ingredient it's got starting guarana. with G. Yeah, it's got a little there's bit of that n- and caffeine. There's nothing. Yeah. Well, eighty milligrams though in this little can is quite a bit. It's one shot like, coffee. Because I think in the Mother cans, like those big mother cans, they only have about 110 or something. Really? Yeah. My pre-workout uh, has 200. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, I remember the days of pre-workout. Yeah. Oh my lord. <laughs> <laughs> and you would have what was the um the other ingredients in pre-workouts? Um, beta, um, beta, beta alanine. Beta, beta, yeah. Yeah. That, like, makes your skin tingle? Yeah. Oh, See, man. one of my mates actually went and bought the beta alanine by itself. Yeah. And we'd put... We would say we're putting extra tingles. Because <laughs> <laughs> beta alanine uh, offsets... There's something offset else. Lac- lactic acid yeah, so um, buildup. Is it a vasodilator or a vasoconstrictor? Something like that. Oh, I don't know enough about that. <laughs> Anyway, we know, um, it makes your skin tingle. He um make makes you like jump around. <laughs> we we put we put extra in, yeah. And we put so much in that uh, we were we would have looked like druggos in the in the gym because our face was tingling and we're having to rub <laughs> our faces. <laughs> like we would have looked like druggos. <laughs> yeah, and it was just. I remember the first time I ever tried pre workout. It was like, I was just at a training session and I'd gone to the like supplement store and bought protein beforehand. Yeah. And like, you know, they'll, they'll just like chuck in like samples of stuff. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, well, I might as well have one of these. Um, and so I, I chucked in my shaker, um, like drank it sort of down quickly before I started working out. And then... I, what I didn't realize was the sample was two servings. Oh, um, okay. And I think it was, I can't, I can't remember what it was. It might have been C4 or something. Yeah, right. And I just got the worst tingles, had the worst <laughs> training session ever because it just feels uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. It was a fun time though. <laughs> oh, it, was, um, it was good fun. Yeah. I haven't had pre-workout in a very long time. Yeah, it kind of, it's it's more of a placebo effect for me now. Yeah. I reckon. I mean, obviously the caffeine sort of gets me in the mood after a day at work. Yeah. Um, But I think more than anything, it's sort of the, the taste that sort of gets me into the into the mood of going to the gym. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of the, it's like the, like you wake up in the morning, you have coffee and like if someone handed you a decaf coffee, you probably wouldn't know the difference. Yeah. Like you still wake up. 
Yeah, like, exactly. I'm in the. I'm sort of in the um, habit now of when I go into the into the office in the mornings, I like I, I have a coffee when I wake up, and then I get into the office. I've been getting in this week. I was getting in at like twenty past seven or so. Okay. And like I'm usually the first person or the second person in the office. Yep. And so I I was sitting down. I was doing uh, my exam. Working on that in the office, and then my one of my bosses who sits uh, behind me will gets gets in usually about eight thirty, and then she goes downstairs and she buys a coffee, and like she comes in and just the smell of the coffee just like wakes me up. It's like all right, like now it's time to like sort of do <laughs> stuff for the day. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. It's, it's it's that instant smell that you first get. Like, you don't even need to drink the stuff. Yeah. Um, I wonder how much pre-workout would help. Like, because I I just do climbing now. Yeah. Like, I wonder, it doesn't seem to be a a thing. I reckon you'll crash. I reckon it'll cause you to crash. Well, like, it's kind of weird because on some climbs, I, I can see how it would help. Like, when, like, there's one climb at the gym at the moment, which is just, like it's on an overhang, so you're essentially like climbing yeah. on the roof. Yeah. And you've got to like, essentially, if you imagine sort of having your hands out sort of to the front and like sort of on a 45 degree angle, each of your arms out to like your chest, like you're doing a bench press sort of. Yeah. And then just squeezing inwards. Oh, geez. Like to do the moves, like, like, cause that's how you're holding yourself on. Cause you can't really like hang so you're just squeezing inwards with your with your arms like i can imagine it like if you get like super hyped on pre-workout <laughs> and you just like go like ah like you, you could do that but then like there's another climb that i was working on on monday i think where you're on the holds are probably no more than like a centimeter and a half and it's sort of there's very few holds and you're like balancing and you, you sort of balance over onto the holes. So you're like standing on one leg and like reaching over the top of your head for another hole to balance yourself. And like in that case, you want to be like as calm as possible. Yeah. Like you don't want, you don't want to be amped for that. There was, um, it's a little bit different to pre-workout, but there was an interesting thing I saw a while ago. I can only faintly remember it, but uh, energy drinks or well, not energy drinks. It's like Powerade and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. You're better off like slushing it around in your mouth and spitting it out. You get more benefit from that than actually drinking it. Oh, really? Yeah. It was, they did this. They what did is this. it like set off like a, like a, some sort of response in your body? Yeah, I think so. So yeah, I think they had like three groups, one that, or maybe even four groups, one that drank water, one that drank and spat it out, one that drank the Powerade and one that drank and spat it out. So that was a long time yeah. ago. I don't think it was anything legit, but it was just interesting to see. I don't know how, how valid it is. That's interesting. But they were able to perform more work. I think they were cutting down like bamboo or something. And they were yeah. able to, yeah, um, get through, I think it was through more bamboo than the other, the other team. Okay. Over a long period of time that was. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. 
All right. Um, well, we should probably we should probably get into the yeah. topic for this episode. <laughs> Let's um, do it. So we're going to be talking about, I guess, stock market crashes. Is that what we're going with? Essentially, yeah. I've got a lot yeah. of stuff. I I've nearly finished the book on The Big Short, which is pretty yeah. much just the 2008 crash. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So. Yeah, I wa- I actually watched The Big Short this morning. Um, man, like the movie is really really well done. I really like the movie. I I don't understand why they changed the names though. They've only done so, it for a couple of the characters though. Yeah. So so, um, Mike Burry they don't change his name. No. But they change uh, um Eisman's name. Yep, that's Mike. Bond. And they change um. What uh, the other dude, Lit Lit Litman? Yeah. Littman? Yeah. 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 I know the way. It was Eisner. Right. Sorry, Eisner, and then Litman. That's why I'm getting confused. But I think um, I think they changed. They change him Mark into Jared Baum something. Because yeah, Mark Baum is Eisner. Because uh, you know how there was that death. That oh happened? yeah. Yeah, that was. I think it was his brother in the movie. Yeah. It was actually his daughter. So, oh, really? I think they changed the characters so they made it more like he had a reason to hate finance because that's sort of what drove him to kill himself. But yeah. what happened in reality was um, they had a nanny. Yeah. And for for their um, babies, they had twin, twin daughters, I think. And the nanny was sleeping with the babies rolled onto one and oh smothered it in its sleep. Really? Yeah, Was that so in the book? That's in the book, yeah. My so God. he it, it, it essentially had the same effect where he sort of hated the world. Um, yeah. Like he thought he was invincible beforehand and nothing could touch him. And then that yeah. sort of brought him right back to ground after it happened. But I, I guess they changed the character so they could sort of put a spin Play on, with that. on yeah. that yeah but there was like Vinny who yeah he he was the same like his yeah they talked about his death in the movie of his uh, I think father that was the yeah. same in the book like he was murdered um yeah but yeah same thing it's, it's a very interesting book um I actually I, I was listening to the audio book sort of through yesterday and last night like just different chapters of it yeah it's it's a very interesting book. It's very it's a very well done movie. It's very tastefully done. Yeah. Um. But I guess like this is one of the things that I wanted to maybe start off the the discussion with is the difference really between a stock market crash and a recession. Okay. Yeah. Um. Because I see a lot a lot of the time especially online and especially sort of in the last 12 months people almost acting like the two are the same thing yeah um oh yeah i can see sort of where yeah that's coming from like like there's a lot of people who talk about oh well the the economy's slowing down so the stock market's gonna crash or which like we'll we'll get into it but as you and me both know it's forward looking yeah and also the the stock market isn't 
it's a measure of things. It's not a like it's not a direct sort of representation of of the the economy, the health of the economy. No, not at all. Well, you could go back to the last crash where we just dipped into crash territory. I think we hit twenty point something percent. Yeah, it was technically a bear market. Yet yeah. we, you know, we weren't in recession. Yeah, like it's uh, yeah, it's one of the one of these things that like frustrates me a little bit when I hear people talking because the the stock market and and stock prices. Yes, they are obviously tied to the health of the economy and things yeah. like that. Yeah. But it's it's part of what's built into stock prices. It's not everything. Yeah. And it's the health of the future economy as well because, like, you look at, say, um, like the 2008 crash and the period where you were actually in recession that year the stock market rallied what was it like 60 percent from its lows yeah and the health of the economy well this is the u.s economy we're talking about well i'm talking about anyway that the stock market rallied 60 percent even though they were in recession territory so the stock market crashed ahead of time to price that recession in and then it was interesting that once everything was all doom and gloomy for the actual population. That's when the stock market rallied 60%. Yeah. And I guess the, the 2008 crash is a good example of of this whole sort of the, the difference. Because the stock market crashed because of the revelations that came out of what was going on in the financial world. Yeah with these mortgage-backed securities and essentially people just printing money that kind of didn't really exist. And when it all came crashing down, that's when the stock market took a tumble. Yeah. Um, It didn't, but the economy itself wasn't particularly healthy underlying this, this stock market that was going up and up and up and up. No, no. But the profits were being booked in a way that it didn't matter what really was going on in the economy. Yeah, okay. Um, and there so were, the stock market was going up and it was, it was that was all good. I think also some people, they didn't know that the economy wasn't in the best shape. Yeah. Like if you have people like AIG who had no idea at all and they're the ones who are who played a big part in it yeah if, if they didn't know then i find it difficult that other larger investors which would move the market would also it, it just felt like a lot of people had basically their eyes covered driving along the yeah. highway well yeah a lot of them didn't didn't they didn't care because like they, they knew like yeah. at at the end of the day every, like they all knew really what was what was going on but they were making their money by creating whatever security like whichever part of the chain they were they were in they were making their money by doing that and then it wasn't their it wasn't their problem 
No. So they could keep making their money, and so they didn't really care if the economy was down. Like, it didn't really matter. Well, that's exactly right. Like, when you, in terms of the mortgages, where they just sort of passed them like a hot potato along the line, as soon as they got them off their own books, then, you know, they, they booked the profit and that was done. It was... Yeah. So, like, it was the, you know, the um, lenders would then, you know, give out a loan. Um, they would give the loan to whoever it was, sell it to the bank. The bank would repackage it and then sell it on as a bond. And then... Yeah. That was, that was it. Yeah. And then they would package those bonds and they would buy insurance on the bonds and the it didn't really matter if those people weren't paying their mortgages because yeah. it was getting packaged in a way that they could keep making money even if the the bonds were full of crap yeah the thing that i um, found interesting was the the whole subprime thing sort of crashed in the 1990s before it sort of ramped up for the second period again yeah so I think it was in, it was the, around 2002, there was only one uh, subprime lender left called yeah. Household Finance Corporation. Mm-hmm. And, oh, they were doing some dodgy stuff. Like it, it said in the book that they had a 15-year fixed rate loan um, that was basically disguised as a 30-year loan. Really? So, yeah. So the borrowers were told that they had an interest rate, an effective interest rate in quotation marks of seven percent yeah when they were actually paying twelve and a half percent like and then they were told they they could pay it off over they they disguised it as a 30-year loan yeah yeah that's yeah it was was, weird it was fraud it was fraud they ended up they ended up getting fined at the end of 2002 for 484 million and then the following year they sold themselves and their um, their mortgages for fifteen point five billion, <laughs> and out of that, I know, out of that, the CEO made a hundred mil. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, it was pretty That's much ridiculous. from there that it sort of started to ramp up in uh, the subprime lending. Yeah. It, uh, it's it's crazy. I could, I was reading about. I read a little bit of the book. And they were talking about they had, was it like essentially a, a negative amortizing loan? Oh, um, yeah. So you could pay nothing on the loan and essentially your interest would get added onto your principal. Yeah. Um, which is like in, in the corporate world, that's a relatively common thing. Yeah. Um, like it, they call it paid in kind loans. So essentially your the interest isn't the cash expense. You add it onto your principal and then accrue interest on the interest. Um, and essentially that that's something that particularly with leverage buyouts they can do. Um, but it's not something really that should be offered to to consumers. Because no. essentially you're saying look at this house you can get into this house and not pay yeah and that was one of the things that was good about the book is that it told you about this sort of stuff yeah like in in the movie i think they described them was it ninja loans that they talked about yeah no income no job (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. And well, when you have these, when you have these sorts of loans, like the people who are buying them don't have any income. Yeah, but, but and they the, get, they're getting given a loan. Yeah, exactly. But for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah, and to the lender, it doesn't matter because they're going to sell it to the bank anyway. Yeah, and I just want to point out here that securitization like this has been going on for a long time and it's not necessarily bad um it's essentially the job of a bank is to take essentially capital from uh from the general public who are who are earning wages and invest that capital back into the people who need it so mortgages is a big one um and obviously when if you're if you're giving out mortgages then houses are going to get built people are going to get employed so you're stimulating the economy yeah um so the sort of generic banking model is you put your money in a in an account at the bank and then the bank pays a little bit of interest and then they loan out your money and then they make interest on on that loan and they make a little bit of profit um, but obviously they can't offer you a very very high interest rate on uh, on your deposits so what you end up with is capital that stays out of the system so and it isn't getting reinvested so if you think about the balance sheet of a bank if they make a loan they end up with an asset on the balance sheet for uh for that loan so say it's a hundred million dollar loan they have that on on their balance sheet as an asset they can sell that asset like securitize it and sell it and have cash back on their balance sheet which is essentially being paid in by someone who is looking for a higher rate of return and that mortgage-backed security is an attractive investment to them. So they are paying this money onto that bank's balance sheet and then that can be loaned out again. So, and theoretically, if you think about it, say you have a, a person with a certain risk profile and they get a loan and then that loan gets securitized and sold off you can then make another loan to another person within that same risk profile so now you've serviced two people uh, through the securitization process so you've you've now built two houses if you didn't if you weren't able to sell that loan you'd only be able to build one house so it's not a bad thing the bad thing is making the loan to the person who can't pay it and then hiding it by constructing the security so that you can't see that they're terrible loans. Well, originally they were they were actually pretty decent, these securities. Like they were full of high quality mortgages. Yeah. And it wasn't until, I guess, the 2000s where they sort of started to get filled up with these subprime loans where, like you said, they get to a certain point where they have no more loans that they can sort of fit, put into these 
mortgage-backed securities. So they start filling them with more risky loans. Yeah. And then the solution to, which again is fine, if you have a risky loan, as long as you sell it on as a risky loan. Exactly. But that's not what was happening. And that's what caused the whole thing to go so badly. Well, interesting thing I found was they did a, it was Gene Park conducted a survey on um, people who were directly involved in the, the loans. Yeah. And they asked them, you know, what percentage do you think are they subprime? And I think this is around 2005. And most people said 10%. One guy guessed 20%. Yeah. And it was actually 95%. It's, it's so ridiculous. Like you think, I mean, I, I see it every day at work, how difficult it is to get a loan or how difficult it should be to get a loan. But then, and, and and it's part of the American economy. Yeah. And part of the way they live is through credit. And credit ne- isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, and there is definitely arguments for pr- extending more credit. Um, but they do it in ways in the US which can lead to these sorts of meltdowns. Well, when you have... They, they talked a lot in the book about uh, incentives in, at one period. Yeah. And they looked at the incentives of these banks where when you have these mortgages no longer on your balance sheet and you're selling them off as packages, there's no incentive to have them as high-quality mortgages so that you're protected yourself. Yeah. Once you I think they had in. a really they had a really interesting example in there about um, eye doctors. Yeah, where yeah, they were the doing one, yeah. they were doing some sort of a a it was uh, cataract surgery. Yeah, cataract surgery it was, and then they were getting paid whatever amount it was it per was surgery. Thir- so thirteen hundred reimbursement. Yeah, by Medicare, and then they so they were doing heaps of those, and then they cut the reimbursements. So, and then suddenly the amounts of cataract surgeries went down and this other really dangerous surgery started gaining popularity uh, because the the incentive structure was all wrong. Exactly. And when you have this incentive structure in the banks where they get paid on the amount of bonds they sell, well, of course, they're going to try and sell more bonds. Yeah. It It just makes sense. And I think for me... The big takeaway from the 20, um, 2008 crash was um, not necessarily the credit swap itself. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, you can just have that. Like originally, originally say when Michael Burry was looking to do a credit swap on uh, these triple B bonds, they would have to, there was, there was basically a thin sliver of the, the bond basically the lowest tranche where it actually was the quality that he was after. Yeah. So I think they said in a, in a bond of, uh, say 1 billion, the lowest tranche was say 50 million. Yeah. I think actually it might've been been more. It might've been, it might've been less. Sorry. It might've been 20 million. So out of a, out of a $1 billion bond, there was 20 million. In the lowest tranche. Yeah. 
And in order to make up, uh, you know, a $1 billion uh, credit swap, you would have to get 50 billion in these triple B rated subprime mortgage bonds Yeah, to insure them. So there was just simply not enough subprime mortgage bonds to have a credit swap on these triple B rated bonds. So the point yeah. for me was when they actually started to create these synthetics where essentially the credit swap acted like the uh, the bond itself because it paid a, a fixed 2.5% um, rate. Yeah. And it exactly mimicked the, the bond itself or the package of bonds. So when they formed this CDO, this synthetic CDO, it was formed out of the opposite bet, obviously, of the insurance, the credit swap. Mm-hmm. And that was able to then, you know, they were able to do this hundreds of times over for uh, these bonds. So, for yeah. me, it wasn't necessarily the insurance on the bonds themselves because, you know, what, like there was only so many bonds that they could go around and get insurance on. Like 50 billion, I, don't, I think it was roughly, was it a trillion? And subprime mortgage bonds? Yeah, I, I don't know the numbers. I, I think it was something around... It was in the trillion. So, let's just say for argument's sake it was a trillion. Mm-hmm. And it took 50 billion to get just 1 billion of insurance on the triple B rated bonds. Then you could only have 20 billion tops betting against the whole subprime um, lending. But it yeah. was it was when you had these credit swaps and they formed the synthetic CDO of the opposite bet of these credit swaps, that's when they were able to multiply it many times over. Yeah. So I think I, I think in the movie it said, you know, they, they asked that guy at the end who was the um, CDO manager when they sat down with him. Yeah. And they asked, you know, how much at this point is betting against say 50 million and they CDOs and he said 1 billion yeah and that was because of these synthetic CDOs where they were able just to make them just out of um just out of nothing really yeah and AIG it's a AIG bought them all it's a derivative yeah yeah AIG the, the, the problem is they didn't actually know what they were buying as well no because of these credit agencies which you know a bit on they they basically took the ratings at face value and then bought whatever was coming their way. So yeah. I think they bought pretty much with their eyes closed, they bought twenty it was twenty uh billion in these um I think it was in these synthetics before even yeah. realizing. Ah, uh, it's 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 I mean, in some ways I think the the problem was, look, if you've got derivatives in general play a much larger role than like the the actual assets, like there's a lot more uh, open interest on derivatives than the actual assets. What the problem here was is that the exposure was all with critical financial institutions. Yeah. Um, and so, so the way a normal derivative works, or I, I won't say a normal derivative, but 
the way derivatives work in general is you have it's a contract and they're called derivatives because their price is determined based on some underlying asset or underlying event um, so and that, that can really be anything and when it's over-the-counter derivatives which these CDS's were really it, you can adjust it to however you want it to be there doesn't necessarily need to be any there doesn't need to be an underlying asset in existence uh, it can just be something you make up so for example there is uh, futures traded on the VIX index and the VIX index is just a, a volatility measure so that doesn't actually exist but there's futures on it what makes it okay that there's futures on it is that I could take one side of the contract and you take the other side of the contract and so you have this diversification of the exposure to that derivative and so if it goes up like a bunch of people are going to lose a bunch of money and a bunch of people are going to make a bunch of money it's not one person or one organization losing all the money and having to pay out to a bunch of people and that was the problem here is that it was because they were these bespoke uh, instruments that didn't they didn't exist before re, like 2005 when they started uh, buying these up not on and not on mortgages anyway no like, I mean swaps uh, swaps exist and have existed for a long time but this specific type of swap didn't and the um, it wasn't well known how they were structured and whatnot so you could only go to the big financial institutions to get them done and so when it all blew up then you had this problem of liquidity in those big financial institutions yeah there were, um, there, were, there were two other things that I had a problem with as well. Mm -hmm. um, one was the... It was around incentives again. And it didn't really show this in the movie. It, it, it kind of like... When you looked at the movie, and I think... Remember when Barry was sort of going between each bank? And he'd go, yeah. oh, can I get um, 5 million in credit default swaps? And then they say, do you want to do a hundred million? Yeah. And he's like, yeah, I'll do a hundred million or whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah. That, so at the beginning, he bought in parcels of five to 10 million in credit mm -hmm. default swaps. And he said it was really strange. At a point in the future, they came back to him and were actually calling him up and were saying, do you want to do more on your credit default swaps? And that was because they were making these synthetic CDOs of the opposite side of his credit default swap and selling it on to AIG. Yeah. And they were taking a cut of the um, the rate that he actually had to pay. So it was basically a risk-free profit for them. All they had to do was find two sides of the bet, basically. Yeah. So they would go out and essentially trash whatever... 
um, CDO that were they were looking to put together, they would sell the credit default swap and then go to AIG or someone similar and say, um, you know, do you want to buy this 80% triple triple A rated, you know, um, CDO? And yeah. they're like, sure. And one of the problems was they had at the banks, they had whole teams. This is the second problem. They had whole teams behind um, exploiting the blind spots in the rating rating agencies' models. Yeah. So one example of this was um, with the FICO scores. So essentially, there's, uh, this there was. Is... Sorry. Yeah. Go on. So, so there was two. So there was like a thin file and a thick file. Yeah. And a thin file is basically like as it sounds. So there's. Um, only a brief history of their uh, credit history and a thick file is there's a, a long history. Yeah. So, what they looked for was very thin file uh, FICO scores and this could be immigrants, say, where they haven't been in the country very long. Yeah. And say if they, I don't know, they had a credit card and they paid it off instantly, then they have an awesome credit rating. Yeah. Even if, say, that person was only on 14 grand a year. So, there was there was someone there. Uh, it was a Mexican strawberry picker who had an income of 14 grand and was able to borrow um, 724,000. <laughs> exactly. But their FICO score, because it wasn't in the rating agency's models, like the thin and thick file, they, they passed it off as like having a, a good credit history and that was all that mattered yeah so there was like little small things where they repackaged like when they weren't able to sell certain um tranches and they repackaged them into more cdos then they were able to get around this issue of having absolute shit in them by sort of bending what the uh by bending the rating agencies models and it was funny actually they they had a uh they set a deadline, I think in 2000 and it was either in 2006 or 2007 where they were going, the rating agencies were going to change their, um, their models. Yeah. And there was a massive wave of, um, bonds and CDOs that got pushed through just before up to that yeah, that period because I wanted this was all- one of the things that really made me like sort of upset was they were going to change their model because they knew the model was wrong. Yeah. But they weren't going to retroactively rate bonds that they'd already done. Exactly. Exactly. So even though they knew the ratings on those on those bonds were wrong, they weren't going to fix it. And there was there was a period in the book too there was employees at these rating agencies who um, would basically want to downgrade certain securities. They give the list of say a hundred to their boss and their boss would give back 20 back that they could downgrade Yeah, with no explanation at all. Yeah. So there were people in the rating agencies that did notice some of the shit that was coming through, but their boss or their bosses didn't allow that them to downgrade them. Yeah. It's really, um, that, that was the part that got, got me, uh, 
re- really sort of annoyed when I was reading it was just how uh, the, the ratings agencies are the people who are supposed to be keeping it all together. Yeah. Um, and obviously, look, the banks misbehaved as well because if they know the rate- ratings agencies are full of crap, they still sort of have a duty to not do the wrong thing because the banks could see it as well. They they have a yeah they they have a responsibility to do that, but in saying that as well, the the more the more of these CDOs that they push through, the more money they made. Yeah. So and and this is and this is the thing like in <laughs> this is why you see professional organizations being sort of set up, and I mean I'm sure a lot of professional organization organizations are a lot of crap, but. You're, they're trying to essentially find a way to enforce this, like a professionalism in these industries where even though, yes, you'll make more money if you do this thing, and yes, it's legal to do this thing, there is still, you've got a responsibility to think about the implications of that and to do the right thing. Yeah. And so the CFA, for example, or the chartered accountants, uh, or the um, CPAs as well. A large reason why we have these organizations is to try and ensure that people are acting professionally. And unfortunately, they just weren't in in America at that time. Yeah. Um, there, there was... Um, remember that... Uh, scene again at the end where it had the CDO manager. Yeah, in so, in Vegas. I think it was. Yeah, it was at the very end of the movie where it yeah. was sort of all blowing up. Mm-hmm. He he was getting paid not on performance or anything like that, but just by the size of his book. Yeah. So he, I think he had twenty six billion under <laughs> management. Yeah. And he was getting paid 0.01% off the top of the... Which the is to- 20... On 26, 26 billion is... 26 million. Yeah. Per year. Yeah. So, he, his, he was incentivized to just create more of these CDOs because he gets paid more. Yeah. That's why he was saying... He, he, he said in the... I don't know if he said it in the movie, but he said in the book, he said... He loves the guys who short the market because he makes them a credit default swap and then repackages it into a synthetic CDO and sells it back to the other guy. Yeah. And and then he just builds his book even bigger. So he's like, I don't care either side that you're on, just do business with me. He's making money, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, It's ridiculous. The, The whole thing is crazy. Definitely recommend reading the book um, yeah, if you haven't, because there's so much stuff in there that I didn't actually know. Yeah, about, and it's a really easy read. Yeah, um, like it's it's very well written. So you tend to just once you start reading, you'll just keep reading because it's written very, so well. Yeah, well, it simplifies a lot of the things. Yeah, and it's it's the strength of Michael Lewis is he writes about these big issues, but he makes it all character based. Yeah. So you read about these characters who played a part, and as you're 
reading about that, you're learning about the issues that underlay the whole thing. Like to be able to simplify something that was so complex to begin with, um, he'd done a really good job. Like the, one of the best things I liked about it, um, like, like the eye surgery thing, but, uh, it was about repackaging CDOs. So he talked about it in terms of lead and gold. Mm -hmm. So he said, imagine you have individual, essentially individual pieces of lead and then you bundle them all together. And then all of a sudden you can sell that a hundred percent lead for 80% gold and 20% lead. Yeah. And then what you do is you go and repackage that 20% lead with a whole bunch of other 20% leads that didn't sell. And then all of a sudden now you can sell that for 80% gold. Yeah. And then you've got 20% lead. So it was a just a completely, you're just completely feeding the shit back into the system. Yeah. Um, but the way he put it was awesome just in terms of lead and gold. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's a really interesting book and it's a really well-made movie so if you haven't if you haven't read the book i would recommend reading the book um and if you if you don't have time to read the book i would recommend watching the movie because um, it's really well done um, i liked i like I, I like the part where the- he's in goldman's office and he's just done the sale and he's walking out he's like i like these cups can i take oh. these cups <laughs> Yeah, well, he said he, he, he acted dumb in those meetings. Yeah. Because his concern was that they were going to catch on. Yeah. Like, he was, yeah, worried that, you know, why do they want to short my bonds? Like, wh- what's he doing? So, yeah. in every meeting, he just acted like dumb. He was like, oh, what's that? Am I doing this right? <laughs> he, he did it I, in every single thing. One of the things that I found really interesting in the book was, and they talk about it a little bit in the movie, but the they talk about it a little bit at, towards the beginning of the movie, was how he was such a social outcast. Yeah. And he blamed a lot of it on his glass eye um, because he, he would struggle to talk to people, like look them in the eye when he's talking to them and all this stuff. And so he blamed a lot of his sort of difficulties in life on his glass eye. And then he had a kid. And at some point, his kid was having issues. And they they took him to a psychologist. And the kid got diagnosed with Asperger's. And I think he and Burry ended up getting getting diagnosed with Asperger's as well. And I think his wife did as well. And and suddenly it it was quite an interesting uh, dilemma that he had because he felt, he felt different and he, that was sort of what he thrived on was being different than everyone else. And then he got a label that made sense and there were other people like him and he didn't like that. Yeah. It was really interesting. There was a point where he was uh, diagnosed with bipolar. Yeah. And he was like, they're wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He knew it it, was wrong, though. Yeah. He was like, how is it possible that someone have bipolar when they don't have any of the depression? Yeah. And he only has these sort of manic stages. Yeah. The the manic stages, he said, were just pretty much his ability to concentrate. Yeah. 
for like extended periods of time. And you've seen that in the movie as well, where um, the his em- employees were looking on in his office and they said, you know, he does this every now and then he locks himself in his office for, you know, a day at a time, two days at a time and just sort of lives in there. That was what he did. He yeah. would sit down and concentrate for these massive periods yeah, and be able to crush, you know, pretty much everything. And not even like the, he was concentrating obviously for a long time, but he was concentrating on these things that like the minutia of these CDOs and what's in them. Yeah. And it's just ridiculous, like ridiculous, tiny little details. And he was able to just focus on it and process it and come to an idea of what was going on in his mind. Well, that's why he became a uh, a doctor. That's why he Yeah, because he school. found it easy. Yeah. <laughs> just Just because he could. Not because yeah. he wanted to do it or anything. Yeah, he actually he actually hated doing it. Yeah, he said he said he found it dis- uh, disgusting. Yeah, like he in the book it was funny. It was like he wanted to help people, but not really. <laughs> like he he wanted to help them genuinely, but he didn't want to have to touch them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so that was, that was one of the really interesting parts of the book that I kind of was like, whoa, what? Like he was a value investor and he would write these he had a blog and he would write about his picks on a blog yeah and then yes, these yes. big investors were going and copying his picks yeah like but like big investors on the level of they worked for Warren Buffett yeah were copying his picks that he was doing at night time while he was on like night shift at the hospital. Yeah. And then he went and started his own fund after his, was his dad, I think that died and he got an inheritance. Yeah. And so he went and started his own fund and like, who was a Joel Greenblatt invested in his fund. Yeah. Right at the beginning. Gave and a yeah, a million after tax. Yeah. Um, and one of Buffett's inner circle also bought into the fund. Yeah. R- really early on. Um, there was, it was crazy. Like, there must have been a massive crowd following because it was two years later. He had 600 million under management, I think. Yeah. Like, imagine going from a doctor, not, you know, having ever worked in the field to having. 600 mil under management yeah two years later and he was turning people away and he like the the market was going down by 20 percent, and he would be up 30 percent yeah he was just ridiculous and you can still find his blog posts online like there's those um archives on you can go to where they've archived the web for ages yeah uh, you can you can still find his blog posts online and they're quite they're quite interesting to read, because obviously he he's one of the best that there's ever been at this uh, picking oh, yeah. stocks. You can and see not, his- not picking stocks on a uh, long term basis either. Like there's this sort of picking them on on this long term. Uh well, it's it's going to eventualize 
the returns are going to be there eventually. The conviction was insane. Yeah. Like but he, he would... But he actually, he was picking the stocks that then went up by a lot yeah. in a year or two. Like, they said the, the typical investment for Bury was for it to go down 50% before it went up 1,000%. Yeah. So, like, there was one there was one there where he started buying at $12. I can't remember the company. Yeah. And he bought it all the way down to $2, which, you know, it's talked about now. It's like, you know, don't average down, you know, all the rest of it. He averaged from 12 to $2, and they eventually got bought out for 20 Yeah. It it's was ridiculous. just... I think he's portfolios somewhere online now isn't it yeah you'll be able to find that sort of stuff um he runs a a fund still and um yeah you you can find you can find stuff online on him and all his old posts and whatnot yeah um but i wanted to sort of spend the second half of this episode talking about the stock market and how the stock market relates to recessions Okay. Um, because there's this really frustrating narrative that you see online where people talk about, oh, the stock, stock prices are so high, everything's so overvalued, um, and people pull out like the Schiller PE and say it's every time in history it's been this high, it's come down within two or three years. And this this idea that the stock market is the the thing that we need to be watching um, and that the prices of the stock market dictate what's going to happen. And yes, obviously, there is some truth to that. But when when you really think about it and how the stock market actually works, um, there's... the, The stock prices are going to move when you have when the big institutions move the stock price. So if big institutions start to sell the stock, it's going to come down. And if they start to buy the stock, it's going to go up. And the big institutions make money when they make returns on on those stocks. So there is no world where these huge big fund managers are going to wake up and look at the prices and say, nah, it's too much. I'm going to start selling and kick the stock market into a crash because they lose money. They, they, they don't get paid as well if the stock market comes down. And obviously, there's probably no one player that can do this, but in today's world where there's computers watching the stock markets all the time and watching the order flow, if there's a lot of selling pressure that starts happening, those computers are going to kick over and the algorithms are going to start selling. Yeah. And so, and people know this. Like people know if they, if they start selling in a big way, the stock market will crash. And there's just no logical reason for them to do that. If, if people are going out and earning money every day and then they're investing it through pension schemes or through superannuation or 401k in the US and this money is going into these funds and it has to be invested exactly stock stock prices are going to go up like it's just one plus one equals two 
they they have to put the money into the market and of course at some point the market is going to come down but it's not going to come down because people decide it's too high no that it doesn't make any sense and i also think at some point like the stock market as a whole is one giant i look at it as like one giant brain mm-hmm. where it's it's kind of as a whole you don't really understand where it's at but like say for example you can't look at the stock market valuations and say oh it's too high because of this because the function of the stock market is to bring together the opinions of all investors yeah and 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 that's how you get prices yeah and even like you have the the opinions of investors saying i think this stock is worth this much i and the other investors say i think it's worth this much and it all sort of balances out but there's also the idea that there is incentive to make the stock market move up yeah and all the big funds and pen- pension funds and superannuation funds they understand this and so they have an incentive to always buy it doesn't matter how high it goes if they buy things are going to continue moving up and they're supporting the, those price levels and i yeah, think that's exactly that's, yeah. like you, you can't look at the valuations and say they're too high like say for example it's it's different to what you're saying but say there's an event or this might be for an individual stock say like say you think it might be too high now well maybe some event in the future is getting priced in that's likely that you don't know about yeah. that justifies that stock price like i'm not yeah. i'm not saying like in terms of the whole maybe for the whole stock market but there's something there's a reason perhaps that the stock market is being priced or stocks are being priced in the way that they are that you don't know about yeah because or, it or does they're being, bring together they're being priced in a different way yeah well that's true like it's it's a different point in history yeah although the people who look at the shiller pe say that you know it's over the entire period it's just going to revert back but perhaps you know we're in a different period where there there's i don't know not as much growth but the valuations are justified somehow i don't know yeah it's uh it's very i just can't get behind the idea of looking at the shilapi and saying oh it's above 25 now stock stocks have to come down and there's no there's no rational logic behind that other than well before when it got above 25 it came back down and and you have people in in almost like every other side of every other facet of investing people say well you, you can't just look at the stock price in the past and say this is what it's going to do in the future and 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 you hear this from people who preach fundamental analysis who say you can't tell anything about the stock from its price but then they go and look at the Shiller PE and say well the Shiller PE is at this end and and it did this in the past so we know what it's going to do in the future yeah like, it do- it doesn't make any sense yeah you can't and and yes I, I agree that probably there's going to be a crash at some point 
But yep. as we saw in 2008, the crash didn't happen because the Shiller PE got too high. Like exactly. that the, the crash happened because there were other things that were going on. And when that came out, then the crash happened. And then everyone panicked. But yeah. it was rightly so. Like the economy, like the underlying economy was crap. Yeah. Like and there were these big businesses that, and specifically financial businesses that, like, I, I guess I'm probably a little bit biased in this, uh, in this opinion, but financial businesses are really the backbone of the economy, and you you can't do any of the other businesses without the financial businesses. Yeah. And so when they start doing things that threaten their liquidity, all the other businesses are all all the other businesses are in trouble. Yeah. Also, like, who's to say that, like, in different environments, people are willing to accept different PE ratios? Yeah. Like, maybe the payback period is longer now. Like, this yeah. is just a whack idea, but. I just thought about it then, like, say, I don't know, life expectancy now compared to 100 years ago is, it's not double, but to say for argument's sake, it's double. So now we're willing to have a longer payback period and higher PEs. Yeah. Or like, but the the whole idea of the PE ratio kind of, and I've written about this a little bit in the doc, but it kind of doesn't, when you really think about it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, because there's kind of two schools of thought or not two schools of thought there's two academic ways of valuing stocks Um, the first is a dividend discount model which essentially you value the stock like a bond yeah so you look at the dividends the stock pays out and you discount them back to the future and so you discount them to a present value and that's your stock price. Yeah. That makes total sense. Because that's how that's how you value a bond. You look at all the coupons and in the face value and you discount it all back to a present value and that's the price of your bond. So and it, this worked very well back in the late 1800s early 1900s because companies operated to pay dividends. And so you yep. had you had for example, Standard Oil paid at one point a 200% dividend. <laughs> what? Yeah. So, you, like you buy the stock for 10 bucks and you, <laughs> you're going to make like 200 bucks on it. Yeah. On a dividend in one year. So, businesses were operating in this way that they were paying out big dividends to their owners. And... Over time, this changed to uh, once ownership became a little bit more widespread and stocks were traded on exchanges a bit more. And um, it, this this whole thing, the, the purpose of the business changed and it was more to continue operating the business and accounting started to get uh, more advanced so we started using accrual counting a lot more and so profit became a like sort of more important measure yeah 
And so what we have now is the discounted cash flow model, or DCF, which, to put it simply, essentially, you look at the free cash flow, which is the cash that the company generates after all its expenses are paid, and you discount that back to a present value, and that's what you that's what your fair value for the stock is. Yeah. The problem with it is that that cash never has to go to you. That cash can sit in a bank account of the company, and you you'd never have to see the cash. But we count that as something that the shareholders get because technically the shareholders own that money. But like when you, when you really think about it, it, it doesn't make any sense. You look at Apple, who's got a bunch of money sitting in Irish bank accounts. And, well, not even Irish bank accounts, I don't think. I don't know where they're sitting. <laughs> but they're not sitting in the US, so they can't be paid out to shareholders. But we, but we look at that free cash flow and we count that as yeah our shareholders get that money and like chances are apple's never going to bring that money back and it says there's a big uh tax holiday but even if they bring the money back they're probably not going to pay it out to shareholders they're going to invest it and do whatever and eventually you extrapolate very very far eventually apple's going to go under and that money's never going to touch shareholders like basically so the discounts of cash flow model, while it makes sense, kind of, it doesn't really make sense. Um, and so what you see is these stock prices that they don't really mean a whole lot. And that's why you have all these different theories for how to price a stock. You don't have a hundred different theories for how to price a bond because there's there's set cash flows and so there's one way to value a bond but there's theories on how to value a stock so it's like okay so the stock price is an amalgamation of a bunch of different theories on what the stock price should be but there's no reason why the average of all the different theories is right like one of those might be right. And then so if you're underneath that or if you're above that, like it doesn't matter that this is the average. Yeah. Like it, it, if it's not dead on what the correct value for it is, it's wrong. Exactly, yeah. Um, and so looking at stock prices, it do- doesn't make all that much sense. And this is part of the reason why we're seeing companies looking at different types of financing because valuing companies based on their stock price is almost a relic from that early like first half of the 20th century and it doesn't make all that much sense now Uh, it's, it's making less and less sense and so i definitely think going into the future if you go 300 years into the future if we're still around and companies are still around you're not going to have public stock markets what not not have. in the form that we have. I don't know. Someone smarter than me knows. <laughs> um, but I think that debt is going to become much more important. Uh, especially now that we've got such low interest rates. How, you, you, what you are your take, thoughts on that, by the way? 
on like how sustainable are low interest rates i've actually been thinking about this and i actually i spent a couple of hours yesterday writing uh writing down some ideas on this and i think i'm going to turn it into a medium article okay um so low so so we talk about uh interest rates as i guess so so the cash rate for example is the rate at which banks can lend to each other overnight and this is the this is the the rate that everything else gets based on um and the reason why banks would need to lend to each other overnight is to manage liquidity so and this this is relevant to today's episode, I guess, because p- financial panics in history have been because of liquidity issues in the financial system. So essentially, you know how fractional reserve banking works? No, have you I, ever I heard don't that think term? I do. Okay, so basically if... So the way a bank works is say you have $100. Yeah. You take it to the bank... And you deposit it in the bank. Okay. So on the bank's balance sheet, they now have a liability to you. So at any time, you can walk into the bank and you can ask for your hundred dollars. Yeah. Um, that hundred dollars goes onto their balance sheet as cash. They so then say I go to the bank and I want to borrow money. Um, say I'm starting a business. Mm-hmm. And they sort of say, okay, well, Matt might come back tomorrow and ask for his his money. So they do a bunch of models and they say, all right, we can afford to lend you $50. Yeah. So I take that $50 and I go to my bank and I deposit it in that bank. So that's my uh, working capital for my business. And so on my bank's balance sheet, now there's a liability to me of $50. There's cash on their balance sheet of $50. And in your bank's uh, balance sheet, there's still a liability of $100. And then on the asset side, they've got cash of $50 and they've got a loan to me of $50. Yeah. So... One of the theories of what money is, is all the deposits in the system. So if you think about in this system now, we've got, you've got a $100 deposit and I've got a $50 deposit. So we've got $150 worth of money in the system, but there's only $100 cash in the system. Yeah. So that's fractional reserve banking. Okay. So in this in this case, we're looking at your bank is holding fifty percent reserves against its deposits. Um, in the in the real world, it looks more like ten percent reserves. Yeah, yeah, it's much smaller. So if a bank has a uh, hundred thousand dollars worth of deposits, they can legally hold ten percent only 10% of that so $10,000 in reserves I think in the US it's much lower isn't it no in the US I think it's 10% oh is it okay yeah um 
So, but it doesn't, those reserves, and this is the the part that gets a little bit scary, is those reserves don't necessarily have to be cash. Um, So they'll hold a lot lower in terms of cash against their deposits. Um, So getting back to the question about interest rates, is say if you came in and now asked for your $100, you the bank doesn't have that. So they borrow from my bank, they borrow the extra $50, and they obviously have to pay an interest rate on that. So they've borrowed the money, they can pay you, so they're still liquid, and then they just have to pay that $50 back at some point. And that's what the cash rate is. Okay. Um, and the way it works in the uh, financial in the Australian system is essentially the banks all hold bank accounts at the Reserve Bank, and then all that sort of cash transfer happens through those exchange settlements accounts. Um, and so, um, yeah. So the cash rate is this is the overnight borrowing rate. Yeah. But in that example, they would still be making money out of that. Wouldn't they? Yeah. Yeah, there's still money. Because obviously the person that, like, they're loaning you $50, but that's obviously going to be higher than the cash rate that they're paying to to give that money back to me. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, so there's, there's this money being created, and it's created through fractional reserve banking. Um, now the, the way settlement happens here, so, you know, when you send money between banks, it takes overnight to get there. Yeah. Essentially what happens is if I go and transfer money to you, then say I'm with CBA, you're with NAB. Mm hmm. Um, and then you send money, say I send a hundred dollars to you and then you send fifty dollars to one of your other friends who has an account with cba yeah essentially at the end of the day all the banks sort of net up their transfers Uh, okay yeah so the net transfer day is fifty dollars from cba to nab so they're not going to send a hundred dollars and then send fifty dollars back they're just going to send fifty dollars one way yeah that makes sense um and then if there's any shortfalls anywhere then banks can borrow and that's how sort of their funding costs come in that's that's the, the traditional way of doing it um there is a system now in australia called uh, real-time gross settlement or rtgs which essentially it's a constantly rolling system for settling payments and yep. I've actually read the um, I've read the technical notes on how this works. So I was interested. Of course, you have. <laughs> yeah, um, and it, it's really cool how they essentially they put everything in a queue, and if it sits in the queue for more than a minute, then there's an algorithm that figures out how to net everything out. Okay. So that yeah. payments get processed very quickly. It's su- supposedly instant. Essentially, instead of netting out over a day, they've just narrowed the, the time span for the netting. Yeah, so they try to uh, 
settle things. They they're settling things transaction by transaction, unless there's a um, unless there's a liquidity issue, and then they'll start netting. Um, now my thought process is that you have um, because of the system there's going to be less interbank borrowing that's going to have to happen because liquidity can be found in other ways for example there's two basic kinds of liquidity the bank can have there's stored liquidity and there's uh, purchased liquidity so stored liquidity is like if they have cash or they have near cash assets on their balance sheet they can use those to match liquidity needs and then purchase liquidity is borrowing money from other banks um, and so this RTGS system I think allows them to monitor their liquidity needs uh, throughout the day and so they can start looking at stored liquidity uh, solutions more so than purchase liquidity solutions and so interest rates can be low because um, they don't need to hold as much. Yeah, because funding costs are lower. Hmm. And so there's less risk in the system of liquidity disasters. There you go. And I mean, that, that, that I guess, yeah, continues on to stock prices then. Lower yeah. rates, um, higher PEs. Yeah, and, and so you've got this... Uh, so yeah, you've got lower rates, higher PEs, and then you've also got... Because like liquidity can come from the stock market so if if you need to m match big payments you can liquidate stocks and then push that into uh push that into your uh making payments and obviously that adds selling pressure into the overall stock market and so that suppresses stock prices a little bit um and but in a in a world where we've got real-time settlements happening and for payments that can obviously be mitigated a little bit um yeah right they'd probably go to the bond market first wouldn't they yeah let's sell yeah they definitely bonds. go to the money market first yeah um but in a case where they do need to liquidate stocks like they might yeah of course um and so this is the the sort of big issue well, not not a big issue. I, I think that that low rates are becoming more and more sustainable because of the technology and payments. And so you've got um, other companies like Mastercard and Visa who are also doing this netting process, and so they're handling liquidity as well. Mm -hmm. And so they can net net across all different like different channels and. Australia is a very advanced payments network. We we have probably one of the best in the world for payments. The US is still quite behind. Uh, countries like Japan are very behind. They still operate very much in cash. And so it's it's actually posing a bit of a problem in Japan because they've got the Olympics there, I think, next year. Mm-hmm. And so they're going to have a bunch of tourists coming in and that's going to put a lot of pressure on their monetary system and their payments network. So 
they've been scrambling to try and get a better payments network up and running. Um, and then obviously when we're looking at a, uh, something like Facebook's cryptocurrency, which is going to operate worldwide, that's going to reduce costs in the system. And so you you can see lower interest rates because those those costs of actually uh, of making payments happen goes down. Yeah. Um, I guess that's for all assets then as well, like house prices as well, can now be sustainably higher than usual. Yeah. That's interesting. I hadn't I haven't really thought about um, or looked into how debt or interest rates can be sustainable where they are. That's really interesting. Yeah. I thought about that. It's a very interesting topic. Like I'm particularly interested in money and because like when you really try to think about what money is, it's not that easy of a of an answer. Yeah. Because money isn't just cash because we can do things without cash and we know we can do things without cash. And so it's yeah, it's a very interesting uh, uh topic and the it has implications beyond what we realize. Um so is there anything else you wanted to talk about? No, no, that's that's pretty much it. Oh, I did want to bring up one thing. Um so I re- recently read The House of Morgan and one of Morgan's big sort of achievements of his career was uh saving <laughs> saving the US from the 1907 panic which was essentially a uh, a stock market crash if we can say say that but it, it was a liquidity crisis in the in the US um and thousands of banks failed and whatnot and there was quite an interesting little uh tidbit in the book about um how they managed their liquidity back then because things happened sort of on a much slower slower basis um and so you know what a bank run is a bank run yeah yeah Yeah. so everyone tries to withdraw their money from the bank um and essentially this happened um because everyone panicked and what jp morgan eventually did was he organized loans from banks that had money to banks who didn't have money to control the crisis yeah um but the banks that were facing liquidity issues and people were coming into the bank to withdraw their money what they did was they told the tellers to count the money as slowly as possible uh so that (laughs) essentially the queues would build up and so they wouldn't run out of their money that's funny Um, so like if someone was and and along with that they were uh obviously then taking the smallest denominations out first so that they could count one dollar two dollars three dollars and obviously people can clearly see what's going on but it saves the bank because it gives the big wigs like JP Morgan time to organize these loans and then a bunch of money would arrive at the bank and then they could meet all the deposits. <laughs> um, 
and obviously nowadays it's very different you're not going to the bank to get it uh, but like the liquidity issues happen in a very different way now so there's different strategies that have to be implemented yeah you can't but just I, count money slowly <laughs> yeah i just thought that was quite that's funny awesome. yeah like no, obviously cool. nowadays if people were doing a bank run like that and going to withdraw money out of atms i suppose they could shut down the atms to handle that yeah yeah they could do that um because obviously the problem part of it like it it feels a bit unfair for them to shut down the atms and stop you getting your money but it's a it's an irrational panic that sets in because yes you might get your money and you'll be okay but overall you'll be worse off if all the banks fail so it's actually in in the interest in the public's interest for the banks to stop the the panic happening and stop that liquidity flowing out um, because it it's better for the system overall to stay alive yeah anyway that was an interesting episode we've been going for nearly two hours yeah no it was good (laughs) yeah um and we'll hope i think we'll um try to organize some interviews in the next couple of weeks we talked about that that we're, we're gonna try to interview some business owners and get some perspective on different things so we've started that process and hopefully in the next couple of weeks we'll have one to go up yeah cool well thanks for listening guys um we'll be back next week with another episode Um, If you have any thoughts or questions or anything, pop them in the comments and uh, we can hopefully guide our conversation with that. 